Welcome everyone to another episode of my podcast and uh, I am uh, always delighted but this one's pretty special for uh, for me because we have um, Matt Dixon who uh, outside of professional services uh, has no need for uh, any introduction but for those inside professional services may not necessarily have come across uh, Matt's work until uh, recently but Matt, it, well I'll let Matt tell his, uh, uh, his story but we're going to get into uh, the Rainmaker genome which is in my view, uh, going to change the way that professional service firms look at uh, business development, how they go to market, both for fee earners and also on um, BD teams. And maybe we can get uh, get into that. But uh, as all my regular listeners know, Matt, I always start with a kind of a who, what, why, when, uh, where, uh, and then let's see where we go with uh, with this. So, Matt, over to you for uh, your introduction. Yeah, um, I I think um, I would ask how long we have, but I think we have. I could just because, but well, not because my I've got extensive credentials, but more because my background is probably fairly confusing to folks. Um, so I um, am a trained uh, academic, uh, and then um, had my fill of academia and decided to go into effectively for-profit research. Um, I a number of years ago, oh gosh, um, oh, it feels maybe about twenty years ago, stumbled into the sales, uh, marketing, kind of customer experience terrain areas when I was working at a company called CEB, which is now a part of Gardner, um, and uh, led the research teams in those practice areas uh, for um, for a good long bit. And I was a part of some really uh, exciting research. Um, folks outside, as you said, Alex, folks outside of professional services might be familiar with the Challenger sale uh, or the Jolt effect uh, in the B2B sales space. And if you're in customer experience, customer kind of service uh, domain area, you might be familiar with the Everless experience. Uh, some of the work we did there um, a number of years ago. But um, I again, it's um, my job is a little bit hard to explain. I, I tell my my folks that I'm a, um, a sales anthropologist, which I think is probably the best uh, description, use research-based methods to really understand uh, how is client buying behavior changing uh, and evolving and how are the best salespeople, or as we're going to talk about, uh, the best business developers, the best partners adapting their approaches in light of those changes in customer buying behavior. So um, I partnered up with, um, uh, as you know, a couple of uh, former CB colleagues, Ted McKenna and Rory Channer, um, early last year to form uh, DCM Insights. And we are, of course, uh, happy to have you as part of the team uh, being our UK MD, um, leading the charge uh, for us uh, in the UK. So uh, really excited about the new research, which um, you were a key part of, and uh, let's, um, let's dive in. Get into it. So the rainmaker um, genome. Let, let's where where did this where did this come from? Uh, because challenger, yeah. I'm fully aware of challenger <laughs> and uh, and all of that uh, that brings. So how did this kind of concept come to life? That you thought, I know what I'm going to go again, or we're going to go sure. again into the the team, and this time look at uh, the professional service industry. Which for those of you who are not in the professional service industry, is certainly um, nuanced. I would uh, suggest. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I would I would point to maybe um, a uh, a sort of crawl, walk, run, or three part uh, lead into this uh, this study. So, if I go way back to when we did the research that went into the Challenger sale, and again for those who are not familiar, we studied um, thousands of business to business salespeople. We found that they all fit into one of five statistically defined selling uh, approaches. In that one of those, the Challenger was the most likely to succeed, especially in a world of um, uh, evolving customer buying behavior, in particular, customers' propensity today 
to um, do a lot of their own research and to reach out to the salesperson very late in the game and then kind of force them to compete on price. Um, so challengers in that world uh, did uh, did much better than their peers. So this was a study we did back in, uh, we published a book back in 2011. Um, and I spend, um, I, and I still do actually to this day, um, take that research out on the road, share it with uh, B2B sales organizations. Every once in a while though, Alex, I would get called upon by a professional services firm. And um, I had a couple of interesting uh, interactions where I think I was presenting to a big consultancy um, uh, once early on, probably 2013, 2014, they'd heard about this research. Uh, and I got up there and I'm presenting it in my you know full gusto mode, talking about sales and uh, salespeople and selling and this kind of thing. And um, the managing partner of the consultancy kind of stopped me um, uh, three quarters of the way through my presentation and said, hey, uh, you know, you keep talking about sales, but you need to understand that we don't actually sell anything here. Uh, we don't use the word sales here. And I said, well, um, let's just stipulate to the fact that there's a mysterious process by which the client's money ends up in your firm's bank account. And let's just call it sales, shall we? And I stole that uh, line from uh, Professor Neil Rackham, who had the same exact experience many years before uh, uh, presenting uh, his work from spin selling. And he told me, and I think he was quite right, that this, this doer seller world where uh, one is really selling one's own expertise um, and uh, the, you are the product uh, mm -hmm. is actually quite different uh, than the B2B sales world uh, for lots of reasons. But th that being um, principal amongst them, you're responsible not just for uh, delivering the work, but also for producing the work. So fast forward to um, 2017, uh, I had left um, Gardner Group, uh, spent um, a bit of time at Corn Ferry, where I was running the um, global sales force effectiveness practice. My now partner, uh, who you know very well, Rory Channer um, uh, at DCM Insights, at the time was chief business development officer of a large U.S. law firm, McDermott, Will & Emery. And Rory actually um, had this notion, also a kind of classic B2B sales and marketing guy, had never worked in professional services before, and brought me in and my team at Corn Ferry in to do a study of about 80 of their top rainmakers uh, to really try to understand what made them tick and what um, what was their approach to business development. And was there anything that Rory and his team could glean from that uh, to equip the rest of the firm uh, to be more effective at business development? So some of the early things we found there actually then showed up in this latest study. So if we fast forward to um, uh, 2022, uh, we partnered with um, the software company Intap, which many of those in professional services be familiar with Intap and their deal cloud platform. Um, they were quite interested in, uh, in funding some research that would really try to answer this question of, you know, what is the challenger model, if you will, in professional services, where, as we know, things are very different. Um, you're talking about doer sellers. It's not a pure sales world. Um, you uh, produce the work, but you or you deliver the work, but you also have to produce the business. And so there are, there's quite a bit that's different there. And so we finally, I'd always had this kind of after those early interactions of, uh, you know, being schooled a bit by uh, leaders in professional services, always had this interest. And then that, that work with Rory at McDermott uh, really did, um, I think, uh, feed my belief that uh, this is a very different world and that the answers would be quite different. So within TAP support, we ran this study. Uh, we collected data on 1,800 uh, professional services partners across law, accounting, uh, investment banking, executive search, PR, consulting, um, and found a quite a different story than the one we see in business-to-business -business sales, which I think, though, is in keeping maybe with some changes we're seeing in the client buying environment uh, in the professional services landscape.
So it's eighteen hundred uh, folk that you uh, you yeah. serve across those um, uh, those industries. Mm -hmm. I think the primary kind of the main bulk of it is law or accounting and um, kind of consulting. Or That's right. Yeah, banking. those are the big three for sure. Yeah, with those other supporting um, industries where it's the same. It's the mm -hmm. do it the do a yeah. seller uh, model as it uh, as. That's it right. Is. And this wasn't just kind of any old any old survey though, was it? In terms of yeah. Yeah. that sort of thing, uh, fill it out. So you went pretty deep in into this yeah yeah kind of some of the not the secret sauce but some of the things that you you got into to to give the the, the outputs and the data yeah you know it's always it's tough uh, in this um uh world where as we all know time literally is money and those are billable hours and uh so there's always a tension between going deep and casting a broad net but also trying to be respectful of partner time and you know, we needed the leaders of those firms to sign off on uh, on launching the survey. We we eventually got 23 firms globally to participate. Again, 1,800 partners in total um, across those various segments. The survey, though, to your point, it was uh, you know it was no uh, it was no joke. Now we got we didn't get any complaints about the survey, but we did get a lot of people coming back saying, "Boy, this really made me think." I thought I'd be able to go through tick the box and just kind of go next page, next page, next page, and be done with it. But it did take all of 35, 40 minutes, and the reason is. We designed it in a way that there were no kind of obvious answers. There were a lot of forced trade-off questions. Um, there were a lot of scaled questions where you had to place your business development approach on a continuum between two different ends. But both of those ends seemed like they could be right answer. And so it really did force you to be quite introspective as a partner in terms of how you spend your time, how you engage clients, um, uh, how, you, uh, how you pitch for business, how you leverage firm resources, uh, et cetera. And um, what we did is for every one of those partners who filled out the survey, we then asked their firms, the leaders of the firms um, uh, themselves, to assess those partners individually on their business development effectiveness. Uh, we used a standard scale of a, set, a scaled set of questions. So it was about five or six questions, things like overall business development effectiveness relative to this partner's peers. Um, effectiveness landing net new logos, effectiveness uh, expanding existing client relationships, effectiveness cross-selling um, uh, the breadth of the firm's capabilities versus selling only your own expertise. Um, we took the scores that the firms assigned those partners and created a composite kind of BD effectiveness score um, that every single one of those 1,800 partners was assigned. So everyone had an individual score um, as determined by their firm's uh, leaders. Uh, and then we performed two types of analysis. One, um, a regression analysis to look at how did all the 180 independent variables we studied uh, affect the um, uh, that known outcome of BD effectiveness. And then secondly, we performed something called a factor analysis, which is a similar methodology to what we used in the challenger sale research. And what that does is it, it kind of sips out all of the insignificant variables, isolates those that are significant, but it looks for the ways in which independent variables kind of clump together in the model. So in, in Challenger, we came to call these the five profiles of salespeople. And now, um, interestingly, we also found that there were five profiles of partners, which is, as you know now, uh, it was, I think, a big surprise and I think quite illuminating uh, for uh, for firm leaders as well. So that's interesting. With, with that analysis, you weren't necessarily expecting there to be five, there could have been three, there could have been eight, there, but that's right. what came out of it is the fact yeah. that there were five, which is what yeah. you have in, um, uh, in Challenger. And yeah. what is also interesting for me in terms of this, because you know, I've, I work with professionals you know, close to 15 years now in terms of the 
the industries and they all you know everybody believes that they are good at what they do in terms of you know yeah. client relationship management or business development depending on or even marketing as sometimes some firms oh. uh call it but then you went and actually cross-reference this against performance so it was this mm-hmm. is what you say i'm doing but actually then you're cross-referencing okay you're you say you're doing this but then is that actually translating yeah. into tangible uh tangible outcomes which kind of makes yeah that's right rocks rock solid in terms of uh in terms of the the data so we now have the uh the five uh profiles mm-hmm. if you uh, if you will do you want to you know share a little further as to what five popped uh popped out and anything anything interesting sure. in particular yeah absolutely and you know i'll i'll kind of hot walk us through the five uh, and I'll encourage listeners as you as I'm walking through them, you know, obviously those in professional services are going to think of themselves first. Then you're going to think of your colleagues. <laughs> you're going to think of the leadership team. Uh, you're going to think of sort of legendary rainmakers in your firm. And, and you're going to think of other folks who might struggle and where they where they fit into those categories. And that's perfectly normal. Um, in fact, I'd encourage you to do so. The the other thing I point out, though, uh, well, I mean, two points, three points. Uh, the, <laughs> the first one is that these are not totally mutually exclusive, meaning um, statistically, we didn't invent these profiles. The factor analysis determined them statistically. Then what we did is we looked at every partner and we said, which of these five do they spike in? Now, that's important because what that also tells you is that a, a partner may have elements of all five of these, uh, but every single one of them statistically spikes in one of the five. And for firm leaders, what that really tells you is that when uh, a an associate rises through the ranks, maybe makes income partner and then eventually equity partner, and they're given a, a you know a bag, if you will, or given a, an expect set of expectations on business development. They have to go produce the business. It becomes a little bit of a choose your own adventure. And, and as you know very well, firms oftentimes don't tell their partners this is the way we develop business here. This is best practice. Instead, those partners look around. They look at those that have been successful. They look at the maybe practice leaders that they've been attached to for for many years. Um, they they pick one path or another. And I think that's what this really tells us is that every partner out there picks a path maybe that they're most, most comfortable with, maybe that they think will lead to success, et cetera. The second thing to think about here is um, that this is, not, um, this is not personality based. So we didn't actually study personalities. I think when I go through them, the inclination oftentimes is to assume that these are personalities. And, and to be clear, I think one's personality might affect the path that one chooses, of course, though I'd also argue there's a lot of other stuff going on too, like the signals you get from your firm about what's important, uh, your um, takeaways from those you've seen in your firm be really successful and how you've interpreted what makes them successful factors in as well. Um, but we didn't cite personality mainly because personality is sort of a hiring and firing decision. It's not a lot we can do about that. Um, but we looked at the things that with the right enablements, the right training, coaching, et cetera, um, the average partner can get better at. And then the last thing to remember is that there's good stuff about all five of these profiles, right? They, each one of them uh, has, brings something really beneficial to the table. If we we could do it, we would create a kind of patchwork quilt of all the best attributes, and that would be our kind of world-class rainmaker. But reality is a little bit different. And what it tells us is that, again, people choose majors or areas that they spike in. So the five are the expert, the confidant, the activator, the debater, and the realist. So um, very quickly, the expert is kind of your reluctant business developer. So this is the person, if um, I've heard this now many times from um, partners in law firms that, uh, you know, I didn't go to law school to become a salesperson. Um, it's kind of one of the refrains that an expert might use. 
Um, what experts um, believe is that, again, they, they're not comfortable doing business development. They don't really like it, but they know it's part of the job as a partner. Um, what The way they do business development is they end up being quite reactive. Uh, so they send a signal to the outside market. Um, it could be through thought leadership. It could be through uh, speaking engagements. It could be serving on industry um, uh, panels or associations. And they're trying to send this signal to the market that chambers rankings, another, another thing we might think about, a signal to the market that if you are in the market for this kind of expertise, whether that's multi-jurisdictional M&A advisory work, or whether it's a specific type of tax advisory or accounting work or consulting, you know, digital transformation, I, I am the person you should call because I am one of the top experts in this space. So in practical terms, that means that they basically sit by the phone and wait for it to ring. They, or, you know, um, wait by, monitor their inbox very carefully. And they're hoping that when the client realizes they have a specific need, they will happen upon my profile and they will reach out to me. But what it really means is that by the time the client's reaching out to me, they're almost always in conversations with several other experts or other firms out there in the market who also profess to be um, specialists in that given area. Uh, the second one, the confidant. So the confidant is kind of, um, I think of them as the old school trusted advisor. So they've got a very small group of deep client relationships. So think like three to four big clients that they work. They bend over backwards for those clients. They deliver exceptional work product, great client service, very client centric in kind of a traditional way. And they try to build great, not just great business relationships, but even great personal relationships. In fact, for many confidants, these relationships were ones that actually predated the work relationship. So they may be people they went to law school together, or maybe they worked together uh, in a prior life. Um, and now this is my client, and I'm going to swarm them with service. And I'm really going to try to build a moat around this client relationship so that nobody else can come in and steal this client from me. And having invested so deeply in these relationships, confidants also believe that um, by delivering great client service, delivering great work product, investing in those relationships deeply, um, that those clients will automatically come back to them the next time they have a need. So the next matter, the next piece of uh, search work, the next uh, transaction they want to um, embark upon, they will come back to me because I've got that kind of relationship with my client. Now, the last thing about the confidant is internally, because they've invested so deeply in those relationships, they are very risk averse. And so they don't want any of their colleagues screwing it up for them. So they don't do a lot of referrals or cross-selling with other practice areas, other colleagues. They don't put notes in the CRM system, you name it. Um, okay, the next one's the activator. So the activator is almost the opposite of the confidant in, in almost every respect. They are um, very externally focused. They are building not a hand, small handful of client relationships, but large number of client relationships, um, purposefully building um, a network of uh, prospects, current clients, subject matter experts, other folks they know they can leverage and connect with one another. And then they activate their network. They try to move people from being connections to being paying clients. And the way they do that is that they um, bring new ideas to these clients. So um, you know, they're building their networks using not just digital platforms like LinkedIn uh, or Sales Navigator. They're also using physical events like firm-sponsored events or industry events. And then again, they're activating the network, trying to pull people from the outer rings where you're just a business card I, I gathered at a conference to you become a paying client of mine by reaching out to clients um, periodically and saying, hey, Alex, I don't know if you saw this piece of um, regulatory information just came out in this jurisdiction. I noticed your company operates there. This may represent a threat or an opportunity to you. I'd be happy to hop on a Zoom, give you my perspective here. 
Um, and in that moment, I'm not looking for, for me to be able to bill you for the work or the time, but uh, rather to pay it forward, right? I'm looking for you to get an opportunity to, to hear my point of view, to kick the tires a bit on my advisory skills, maybe earn a bit of goodwill so that when you realize this is an opportunity for our company or a threat to our company, uh, we need to carve out budget for this, that you come to me because I brought you the idea and I gave you a bit of free advice on how to handle um, that opportunity. Um, and then lastly, the activator, again, unlike the confidant, they don't hoard relationships. Instead, they are looking to uh, establish broad-based connections between their clients and the, their own colleagues within the firm. Because an activator believes that um, when they can shift the locus of loyalty from the client's loyal to me, to the client becomes loyal to the collective we of the firm, that is a much stickier relationship and one that the client is going to think twice about um, uh, you know, switching to a competitor because we're serving the client across many different parts of their organization, right? Many different functional areas on many different projects and matters, et cetera. Okay, the debater. So I think the debater, um, for those familiar with Challenger, they might look at that and say, this person feels kind of like a professional services challenger. They are sharp elbowed, they're quite opinionated. They like coming in and basically reframing the way the client thinks about their business. You know, Alex, you're, you're thinking about this the wrong way. You need to, no, don't go left, go right. And I'm hoping that by doing that, I'm creating white space between myself and all of the other firms and partners who are basically just giving you the kind of expected answer. I'm coming in with a totally innovative point of view and then I want you to follow my lead. Now, tipping my mid a bit to the, um, uh, the results here, uh, I would say that debaters, um, the, the interesting thing for us is while that is a winning profile in B2B sales, it's actually kind of a tough posture to have in professional services where you are the product. And it told us that, look, and when we spoke to clients, they told us, I want my partners and my firms to that I work with to challenge my thinking. But if they're doing it every time we sit down, it becomes a bit mentally exhausting. Sometimes I just need you to do what I need you to do, Right. Um, and the last one is the realist. So the realist is a, also an interesting profile. Um, these folks uh, believe that every client out there in professional services has been burned in the past by a, a firm or a partner who has over-promised and under-delivered, um, uh, an attorney who has sent surprise invoices after the matter is concluded that are way in excess of the client's stated budget, you know, all that good stuff. So the realist does the exact opposite. Their clients might describe these folks as kind of glass half empty, actually, but they're they're the truth tellers. They're very transparent. They're very honest. They tell the client not what they want to hear, but what they need to hear. They don't sign up for work they can't deliver on. Um, they will actively tell clients, you know, our, we would love to serve you on this uh, matter or on this project, but to be honest, that's not our area of expertise. You should go over here to my competitor. Uh, and they know doing that will ultimately earn them goodwill in the eyes of the client. Uh, because they are always the people who are going to be honest uh, with the client um, about what can and can't be done, et cetera. So those are our five profiles. And again, uh, when you look at, it's interesting, when you look at this across professional services, it's kind of evenly distributed, actually. Um, you've got roughly 20% in each of those profiles. But you see interesting variations um, within sub-segments. So when you look at uh, law in accounting, those, um, uh, those segments are heavily weighted towards confidants those old school trusted advisors, maybe not surprising to anybody um, uh, listening to the, the podcast today. You look at um, investment banking, for any of you who know investment bankers, uh, they lean heavier towards debaters. So um, uh, the bigger chunk of investment bankers are debaters. 
If you look at executive search consultants, you know, uh, talent advisors, uh, these folks lean more towards activators. And maybe that stands to reason, right? Because that's all about working your network and finding those hard to find candidates and getting those introductions and things like that. So anyway, interesting variations, but we've controlled for all those, those different sub-verticals within professional services so that the story we could tell would be a universal one across geography, sub-segment, uh, et cetera. So we've got the uh, the five personas, and that's the looking, you know, the I guess the the why they do, the how they do, and the the what yeah. they do. Again, to be clear, it's not personality um, on that side of things. It's nothing to do also with their expertise. It's kind of the, it's predicated that you are an expert in terms of what you do, in terms of your technical expertise of being a lawyer, accountant, yeah. consultant. This is very much kind of the go to market motions, rhythms, cadences. If you that's right, uh, if you will. And out of all of these these profiles, notwithstanding the earlier comments that one can be successful in in all of them, what mm -hmm. did the uh, what do the data show in terms of uh, in terms of success on that side of things? Yeah, it's it's interesting. So there's a couple of different types of analysis that we did. I mean, the first would be called a descriptive analysis, which is if you merely looked at um, you know, the partners where they spike, keeping in mind they have elements of the other four profiles, but they spike in one. Everyone spikes in one and you did just a merely a descriptive analysis, what you actually find is, yes, to your point, you can be a top performer in any of these profiles, but you can also be a bottom performer in any of these profiles. Um, and there are some big gaps that actually emerge. So um, the biggest gap, I think, was around the activator. So you find the activators are the biggest chunk of the high performer population. They're also the smallest chunk of the low performer population. In other words, were you to stick your hand in a hat full of activator names and pull out a name, um, you would be way more likely to find an above average performer, if not a top rainmaker. As surprising, a lot of these classic profiles, you know, the expert, the confidant, you see experts and confidants, a lot of them in almost every firm we studied, um, you are actually more likely to be a low performer than to be a top rainmaker. In other words, the exact opposite is true. If you put your hand in a hat full of confidant names in your average law firm or, or accounting firm, for instance, and you pulled that hat uh, name out of the hat, they would be more likely to be an underperformer, if not a low performer, than to be a rainmaker. They're very rare that you find rainmakers that fall into that category. Then what we did is we, we want to look at specifically the impact in a clean statistical way of the different variables that factored together to describe these different profiles. So if you were to isolate the variables that are unique uh, the attitudes, the behaviors, the time spend characteristics, the pitch approaches, the client engagement techniques that were specific to each one of these five. And then if you, and pardon the, the metaphor here, but if you were to have a horse race against them and you said, yes, people are messy, but let's isolate these variables that are unique to the five and let's look at how they impact business development effectiveness, what we find is really interesting. Um, uh, the first thing you find is that uh, four of the five profiles the more a partner leans into those pro profiles, the more they inhibit their own business development effectiveness. So going from a weak confidant to a strong confidant or a weak um, expert to a strong expert actually drives um, underperformance in your business development. So partners who do this, you know, they might be thinking, well, I'm really going to double down on this approach. I'm really going to you know, uh, really go deep with that small handful of clients like a confidant might do. And they're, they think that they're stepping on the gas in terms of business development effectiveness, when in fact, what they're doing is, is opening a drag chute or stepping on the brakes in terms of their own effectiveness. Um, if a, just by way of example, if you took the average performing partner right in the middle of the distribution, a 50th percentile partner, 
And they went from weak characteristics around the expert profile, for instance, to really strong characteristics, like robust, strong demonstration of those, those uh, uh, characteristics. They would um, damage their own business development performance or decrease their own revenue generation by up to 15%. Now, the opposite is true of the activator. So there's the only one of the five where we found a positive statistical correlation, a straight line linear statistical correlation between strength of activator skills, behaviors, attitudes, techniques, and business development performance. So if you took that same average 50th percentile partner, and they went to being a weak activator to being a strong activator, they could increase their own revenue generation by up to 32%. And it was the only one of the five that had those um, uh, that positive relationship. Now, I think for firm leaders, what it tells us is um, that you know, look, you could be successful in any one of these approaches, but running a firm is, um, you know, it's a bit of uh, uh, resource allocation, prioritization, and making principled investments toward the growth and betterment of the organization and the partnership. And what this tells you is that business development shouldn't be a choose your own adventure, right? It shouldn't be something that you just give somebody, um, somebody uh, their, you know, their business card when they make partner and you, you point out the fact that now they've got to generate X amount in bookings, you should be guiding them as to how to do so because some of these profiles are much more uh, likely to fail than to succeed. And there's really only one clear path to success. Now, I think what's interesting is um, why, you know, why does the um, uh, the activator do so well in the current environment? This is something that, you know, you and Rory and Alex, Alex you, you and I have been spending a lot of time talking about and debating uh, since these uh, these findings came out. But I think I actually think that's a little bit of the, the wrinkle here in the story. And if I reflect on my, you know, my journey through pro, pro serve, started at big four, then law and then commercial real estate. If I look at my big four days, you know, the partners that were super successful absolutely were activators. There's no two yeah. ways. I look at what they were doing and how they were approaching and fundamentally in simple terms, it was the we always yeah. look to where they could bring in their colleagues into client relationships where it made um where it made sense yet also big four uh this is direct client feedback sometimes it'll be you're brilliant on the deal but then you disappear for 18 months and then you expect yep. automatically to get the deal next time but one of the competitors have been spending that 18 months activated behaviors you know yep. showing goodwill keeping in touch bringing us into uh, into conversations and Law way more comp, you know, seeing the confidant behaviors, but also that oh, for sure, yeah, um, behavior. And then commercial real estate was a real blend again between, dare I say, it, the um, the transaction folk were we're the masters of the universe, therefore the business will come to us because of us. And then when, yeah. when the transaction market suddenly went quiet, it was they would stick their head below the parapet and then realize that actually it's the corporate relationships are yeah. the reason we were getting the business in in the um. Uh, in the first place, what we're seeing obviously now is you know the buying dynamic, the buying dynamic, and the buyers are also changing, which is driving a lot of this expectation of what type of relationship right. they want uh, with their professional service um, services providers. But moving forward, then Matt, so some of the listeners may be going, okay, so what? <laughs> what? what yeah. This now, now we have all this research and this insight. Brilliant. Um, what the hell are we supposed to do with it? How are we supposed to use it and um, work with it? So can you shed any light yeah. on that? 
That's right. Yeah. And, you know, it's a, it's only academically interesting if we don't get to the so what, what do we go do with it? And I think, you you know, but before we go there, I, I think you pointed out, um, again, the thing I think is the really interesting wrinkle here. You know, uh, if we were to have done this research, um, Alex, I'd say maybe 30 years ago, I don't think we would have found the results that we did. I don't know because I don't have a time machine, but um, I think we might have found a different profile as the select for profile, maybe the confidant, maybe the expert, uh, who knows. Um, and I think the reason is that in, you know, in the old, the old days, right, if we go back a couple of decades, I think it was a world in which um, uh, clients would routinely go back to the firms and the partners they'd used in the past, provided they did good work, of course, and you had a good relationship, especially if you had a, a deep personal relationship, um, those were firms and partners you'd go back to. In fact, I think professional services in most firms, you know, until very recently was treated as kind of a black box yep. of purchasing, right? Procurement wasn't in there. There was no such thing as legal operations, for instance, in law. And um, and senior executives easily could put their thumb on the scale for the search partner or the, the law partner or the, you know, the accountant or the M&A advisor they've used in the past and that they had a relationship with and, and everyone kind of looked the, the other way. That's no longer the case. In fact, I'll just share with you one um, data point here, which is in a separate study we ran of about 100 C-level buyers, we found, we asked them um, to what extent provided the firm or the partner did good work, would you be inclined to go back to the same firm or partner uh, for the next need that your organization had? Now, five years ago, those about three quarters of people would say, yeah, we would just go back to the well, right? We just go back routinely to the, the firms and partners we've used in the past. Today, that's about 50%. And if we ask them to think about what it'll be five years from now, only a third report that they would be inclined to go back. And so when you talk to C-level decision makers, it, again, 20, 30 years ago was, yeah, I, I'm buddies with so-and-so. We went to law school together. We played golf on the weekends. Our families go skiing together. They've done great work. We're just going to go back to them. And nobody really hassles me. I know they charge a little bit more, but nobody really hassles me about that. Today, C-level decision makers actually feel quite a lot of risk and exposure there. There's a I can't be seen to be putting my thumb on the scale. I actually recuse myself from those decisions. I leave it up to my team. You know, we really do want to make sure we choose the best provider given every unique opportunity, irrespective of whether we this firm has done great work for us in the past. Sure, they'll be invited to the pitch, but we're inviting boutique and niche providers, alternative service providers, you name it. You know, we're doing ourselves a disservice if we don't think carefully about who is the best provider given this need right now. Now, I think to your your um, your question, though, you know, OK, so what? How do we drive activator behaviors? Um, I I'd answer that on two levels, because I think there's um, at being um, I say activator is a story of partner level skill, but it's also a story of firm level capability. So on the partner side, if you were to look at all the variables, there are about 25 variables that factored together to describe the activator approach they kind of break out into three pillars. Um, the first pillar uh, we call the uh, commit pillar. And, and by commit, we mean that activators, unlike the other four profiles, demonstrate a clear commitment to business development, meaning quite literally that they carve out time every week, if not every day to do business development. And that time is purposeful and it's structured time. They also are committed to not just um, broadening relationships with existing clients, but bringing in new clients and always having a pipeline of opportunity. Contrast that with the other four profiles. Most of them reported, I, I do BD when I have time to do it, when it's not crowded out. Um, and when, when I do BD, I usually go back to my existing clients. I'm not looking to bring in that next client. Now, why does that matter? 
Well, in a world of, um, if you will, less relationship stickiness with clients, where clients are much more likely to pull up the tent stakes and go with a competitor, you need to shield yourself from that by having a robust pipeline and a commitment to BD on an ongoing basis. And the, the other thing I'll mention about this commitment piece, this commit pillar, is you know, activators will tell you they, they believe not just that being a good business developer is part of the job, but also that it makes them a better lawyer. It makes them a better consultant being a good business developer. And they really do believe that. Now, the second pillar is that they uh, connect. So we mentioned this before, activators are network builders. So they're very heavy users of LinkedIn, uh, tools like SalesNav. Um, they are uh, very active at events. They go to an event with a goal in mind. This is, this is who's coming. I'm going to make this many new connections and I'm going to follow up with those connections religiously afterward to try to turn them into business. Um, and they connect internally, right? So I'm looking, as we talked about before, to um, not just have that client be loyal to me, but have the client be loyal to our entire firm because I'm going to introduce Alex and Alex is in a different part of the business, but I know he's going to deliver value to my client. And when I can get my client connected with many parts of my firm, the client thinks twice before they go with the competitor because there's a lot more at stake when we know their firm that deeply and we have that many connection points. If they're just loyal to me, that's fine, but it's a single threaded kind of relationship, which is much easier uh, for a client to sever. Um, and then if we think about um, the last pillar, the last, the third pillar, we call the create pillar. So remember we talked about before, activators actually, they why we chose the term, they activate those networks, they turn those connections into conversations. And the way they do it is they proactively bring new ideas to their clients. They don't wait for the client to realize they have a need. They're not responding to known needs. They're bringing unknown or maybe unappreciated needs and ideas to the client. So I don't know if you saw this, let's hop on a Zoom and discuss it. Um, and again, earning that goodwill, but it's really about being proactive and really, again, activating uh, those uh, those robust connections you have made. Um, so that's that's the three pillars at an individual level. We've got to um, commit to BD, we've got to build those broad-based connections, and we've got to create business opportunity out of, turn those connections into business opportunities, into conversations and then business opportunities. Now, I mentioned before, you know, those are the individual skills, but we also know that there are some firms that we studied that had a spike in activators, which were interesting because it, these firms stood apart from the others in the sub-vertical and, and across professional services generally. We spent a lot of time with their firm leaders, the CBDOs, the CMOs, the COOs, the managing partners, the chairs, and we talked to them about um, uh, how they operate uh, from a business development standpoint. It was quite interesting. Um, they see a, a set of capabilities that are absolutely critical for an activator firm. So the first one would be most of these firms say, look, you've got to do business development training. And believe it or not, there are a lot of firms that don't do this to this day. Again, they just leave it up to um, their partners. And I think, in, and Alex, you've heard this too, but I think the reality is that there's still a lot of leaders in professional services who believe that business developers are born, not made. And so you're kind of wasting your time training partners to be good business developers just some will figure it out, the rest will struggle, and that's just the way it is. Um, activator firms don't believe that. They believe everyone can get better at this, and they invest deeply at this, and they don't just do it at the partner level, they do it at the associate level. So things like network building and developing a routine around business development and proactivity and scanning the news and the events landscape to try to find opportunities for clients, those are not things you need to wait till you become a partner to start doing. Those are things you should start learning how to do now. Um, and so they invest in that training at the associate level. The second thing is um, these firms will talk about um, enabling uh, activators, and they will talk about how do we enable them with the right tools and technology. So 
Um, have we invested in sales nav training for all of our partners? Have we embedded that in their, into their workflow? Um, have we structured our events in a way that it, it encourages uh, people to not stand in the corner, but to create connections that can be, then be turned into opportunities? Are we using modern technologies like ChatGPT to scan the news uh, and surface up opportunities so that our partners can reach out to clients and prospects and say, hey, I don't know if you saw this, but let's hop on a Zoom and discuss it and pay it forward and, and earn that, um, uh, that client business. Um, so, you know, again, there's some of that enablement uh, infrastructure is absolutely critical. And then the last piece is they'll talk about um, uh, how do we create a culture that rewards activator behavior? So how what are the signals, um, both monetary and non-monetary kind of rewards and recognition? But, you know, if you think about everything from what we celebrate uh, internally, who we, you know, uh, shine a spotlight on or, or put on a pedestal, um, how we lateral hire uh, from other firms, how we make partner selection or election decisions. Um, a lot of those signals are really critical. And uh, one of the things I find very interesting is when we we do the report readouts for the firms that participate, many of them will look at this and say, boy, we, we got 35, 40% confidence in our firm for just for instance. And how did this happen? And invariably the most senior person on the call says, you know, gang, we did this to ourselves. If you look at what we reward and celebrate, how we pay people, you look at the people we brought from our competitors in as lateral hires, um, how we make um, partner selection decisions, it's all about being a confidant. Like we have nobody to blame but ourselves. So that 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 cultural piece is really important too. So again, it's about the individual skill, but also the organizational capability. And so then to close uh, close this out, what what can folk do that are listening to you know listening to us talk? You know, if they're thinking, yeah. okay, right, I hear everything you're saying, Matt. Yes, I can see this person, that person, and this all makes sense. But now I want to uh, change. What what what's yeah. the next thing they should be thinking about or doing in terms of um, contacting you us <laughs> as the uh, as the team? Yeah, absolutely. So I'd say take a couple of things. Maybe one. Um... Uh, you know, our firm and, and Alex, you're, you're a big part of this, but um, we do um, activator training. We have a, a we call it the activator Devel development system where we go out and we work with firms at the partner level, the associate level, the practice leader level, the executive committee level, trying to drive that activator skill adoption and that behavioral kind of development uh, through a program rooted in the research and based on the, the science. But I, I think for folks, um, maybe individuals who might be thinking like, hey, how do I you know, I used to always say that, you know, the biggest thing about challenge challenger was uh, challenge yourself. Like, how do you challenge yourself to sell differently? And here I might think of it as well. If you're an individual um, fee earner listening to the, the pod, you know, how do you activate your own activator approach? And, and I think there's some just do it's right. So one is as soon as you get off this um, this pod, unless you're driving, wait, if so, wait till you get to the next rest stop or you <laughs> get your destination, get on your calendar and block out. 30 minutes um, a few times a week to do business development. Make sure that is a uh, purposeful time. So, you know, Monday, it might be um, uh, going through your network, right? And, and uh, engaging with some uh, some connections or, or going and finding connections in client organizations or prospect target organizations that you don't have yet, maybe by finding some of those hidden allies and in, uh, in leveraging relationships that you might have within that client organization. Maybe on Wednesday, it's following up on that stack of business cards you collected at the recent industry conference or firm event. You know, so make it structured time. Uh, the second thing I would say is, um, and I really like this as a really practical approach, and it's a great way to distinguish yourself from everybody else in the market. 
uh, get out there. And by the way, a lot easier if you have access to a platform like SalesNav, which serves up, here are people in your network who just changed jobs. We know that when a leader changes jobs, they will spend 70% uh, of their budget, make 70% of their vendor and supplier decisions within the first 100 days of being in that role. And so what that means, and think about it, if you're a lawyer, for instance, um, it's, I think something on the order of 20% of uh, Fortune 500 general counsel are going to retire in the next like three to five years. That puts something, it's, it's something obscene, like $30 billion of, of legal spend up for grabs. People are changing jobs continuously, whether it's I went from a business unit GC role to an enterprise GC role, whether it's I was the CFO or uh, the head of M&A over here, now I'm head of corp dev in another company and I've changed industries. Those are phenomenal opportunities to engage your network and activate your network, to turn those people from connections into clients. And the way you want to do it is not the way that most partners do it. So most partners might catch that, you know, Susan has changed jobs or Bob is in a new role and they'll reach out and say, congratulations, Susan, this is great. You want to get to, I'd love to learn more about your new role. Let's get together and talk. And the client sees right through that. The clients hate that. And the reason is they say that is just thinly veiled trolling for additional work. Like, I know that's the only reason you're congratulating me and you're, you want to get a call with me. You want to see if you can sell me some work. What activators will do is they will think of not just, is there a business opportunity for me to help you, but actually, is there a personal level of value I can deliver? So just for instance, let's say, you know, I noticed that uh, Susan has changed industry. She's gone from um, medical devices into, into pharma. And while those are kind of adjacent spaces, they're quite different. I might reach out to Susan and say, Susan, I noticed you're a GC of this pharma company now. You've come from med, med devices. Uh, I'm, uh, I've actually got a lot of connections in pharma, many uh, GCs, AGCs. I am sure that they would love to connect with you and, and tell you what they know. And they made similar transitions in their careers. Be great to have some friends in the industry. Would it be helpful for me to make some introductions um, on your behalf? That is a phenomenal pay it forward moment or even something more personal. Let's say I noticed Bob has just moved his family from uh, London to Hong Kong. And I might reach out to Bob and say, Bob, we've got an office in, in Hong Kong. And even if you don't ever do any work with them, these folks have been there for a long time. They know, um, uh, you know, you can talk about schools, you can talk about restaurants, you can talk about things to do on the weekends, uh, where to where to get a flat or where to, to buy a home. Um, you know, let me make some connections for you. So when you hit the ground, you've got some friends in town. Uh, these folks would love to get to know you um, and uh, bring you into their social circle, if not business circle. So those are phenomenal opportunities where somebody feels like, boy, this, this person's looking out for me. You know, not they're just trolling for work. So again, it's a really practical kind of just do it that lets you start to um, flex your activator muscles a bit. And uh, Matt, lifting the lid a little bit into one of the modules of uh, our activator training mm -hmm. uh, development system in terms of business right. value, uh, trust value, and uh, personal value. Matt, yep. it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on here. Um, this is the first for me, but if you want to learn more in terms of how we can uh, we can help you, if you're US-based, you know, feel free to reach out to Matt or uh, our colleague, Rory. I'll put uh, their details. If you're UK-European-based, you can reach out to me or our colleague, Sylvia, in uh, Germany, we'd be more than happy to share more of this uh, to you. There's also a link to the Harvard Business Review article, which was published uh, last week. Where are we? Yeah, last week in uh, this week in October, 20th. No, last week in October. It's been a long, uh, a long week. But um, I genuinely believe this is going to shift the needle in terms of the future of business development within um, within within the industry, which is fundamentally why um, I got on this uh, this rocket ship. So, Matt, thank you very much. 
And thank you, as always, and always to my listeners, if you want to be on the podcast and you want to do, if you want to recommend anybody to be on the podcast, if you want to do, wherever you are in the world, uh, enjoy, get in, get stuck into this, and uh, I'll see you on the flip side.